to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of global trends, issues, and developments in future fuels. Are you looking for real insight and analysis from the industry's top experts? Are you trying to stay ahead of the curve and read the tea leaves? Then you're in the right place. Uh, my name is Tammy Klein, and with me today is Sam Wade of the California Air Resources Board, and we're going to talk about some questions surrounding the low-carbon fuel standard. Sam is, as many of you um, listening out there will know, He is chief of the Transportation Fuels Branch in the Industrial Strategies Division of the California Air Resources Board, or ARB, or CARB, as as I call it. As chief of the Transportation Fuel Branch, Sam is charged with overseeing the low-carbon fuel standard. That includes the rule development and implementation. In prior positions with CARB, Sam uh, contributed to the inception of California's cap-and-trade program authored portions of the 2008 AB 32 scoping plan, and served as CARB's Deputy Director of Legislative Affairs. His private sector experience includes work in energy policy at a major Californian utility and time at a bioenergy startup. He holds a BS in Mechanical Engineering from UC Davis, an MS in Mechanical Engineering from the University of Hawaii, and an MPA in Environmental Science and Policy from Columbia University. Sam, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tammy. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you. I'm absolutely thrilled to have uh, CARB on the show. So I'm going to get right into it and subject you to my five-part questions, which I think are becoming a little famous. (laughs) Nothing like the five-part question. So I'm going to start with the uh, scoping plan. And as you well know, CARB recently released the scoping plan and um, the idea is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 40% 40% below 1990 levels by 2030. And part of this plan um, will require an increased stringency in the low carbon fuel standard, reducing carbon intensity by 18% by 2030. So the first question that I have for you is, what does that really mean in your view and in CARB's view uh, for fuels in the California market in the coming years? And what kind of fuels do you expect to see um, in the market um, in the coming years? You know, more ethanol, more renewable natural gas, uh, cellulosic biofuels, which which haven't really um, sort of reached their their commercialization peak, if you will, yet. Um, all of the above, um, something else. Um, what's your view? Right. Well, let me start with you know some of the success we've seen under the programs so far, because I think that helps frame where we see things going. Um, you know, from 2011 through 2016, we've seen really strong growth in liquid diesel substitutes, especially in renewable diesel and biodiesel, with renewable diesel growing from 2 million gallons in 2011 to over 200 million in 2016, and biodiesel growing from about 13 million uh, to over 100 million. And, and so that's, you know, been very significant. We've also seen renewable natural gas really uh, making some strong inroads in the CNG and the LNG space where renewable natural gas now makes up over half of all of the gaseous fuels used in California vehicles. We've seen significant growth in the number of electric vehicles on the road, and even more of that is is coming along with the vehicle manufacturers uh, set up to offer over 80 electric and hydrogen vehicles in the next five model years. We've seen uh, moderate but important growth in the use of E85 and uh, you know ethanol and flex fuel vehicles, 
And uh, really across all those fuels, we've seen continued declines in the carbon intensity of each of those fuels. So uh, we're pretty excited about the progress we've made uh, using the low carbon fuel standard so far. And so in the scoping plan process that you mentioned, uh, we'll be recommending to our board that we build on the success of the program and use uh, the framework that we have in place to further decarbonize the fuel mix out to 2030. And, you know, staff's preferred scenario, as you mentioned, would be uh, a decline of 18% in the carbon intensity below uh, 2010 levels. So, uh, you know, that's a, a, an additional significant push that we need to make. But as to what fuels might help us get there, we've run a, a wide variety of scenarios as part of this scoping plan analysis. Most of those scenarios involve uh, one or uh, of the following two things or a combination. Um, you know, first, we, we think there is still more opportunity for continued incremental improvement from sort of the first generation of fuels uh, that have provided the majority of credits so far. Um, and so if we see continued volume growth and carbon intensity decline across biodiesel and ethanol um, and to some extent renewable diesel, uh, we'd be very excited about that. Um, on top of that, we also do expect to see some penetration of second-generation biofuels or fuels like electricity and hydrogen that have a much bigger greenhouse gas benefit per unit of fuel sold. You know, but on top of that, one of the nice things about LCFS is we don't really have to have a perfect crystal ball because the program doesn't pick winners. Uh, it basically sets up this system of tradable credits and uh, provides value to the lowest carbon fuels that can come to market. So, the, the framework really does facilitate us to look across a wide variety of options and to hopefully uh, drive the best option to market. So with that in mind, what are the biggest priorities for CARB this year in administering the, the LCFS program? I mean, especially concerning the work that you guys have been doing on biomass-based diesel, alternative jet, co-processed biofeedstocks. What's, what's the biggest uh, priority for you guys this year? Right. Well, we're going to be starting a, a rulemaking, which is sort of our formal process to change the program. And, and that will really commence after the scoping plan process concludes. We've done a little bit of preliminary uh, workshops and, and engagement with stakeholders on a few items, um, the most significant really being the addition of a mandatory third-party verification system uh, for checking the carbon intensity uh, crediting under the program. And really what that hopefully will look like is something very similar to what you see under uh, the California Mandatory Reporting Program under the cap-and-trade system here, or uh, some of the, the schemes in the European uh, biofuel systems. And so what that involves is third parties uh, becoming an additional check on the information in the program and uh, supplementing the work of ARB staff to make sure that we get all the numbers right and that uh, the very high value of these LCFS credits is backed by the most credible data that we, we can impose. Uh, on top of that, you know, another big priority you have is the addition of alternative jet fuels, um, as you mentioned. And, and the reason we're so focused on alternative jet fuels is we see the airlines emerging as important long-term purchasers uh, that help get new advanced biofuel facilities constructed by providing long-term offtake agreements uh, for those fuels. And so we want to recognize that and encourage that uh, up until now, you know, the sector had been completely excluded from the LCFS, uh, but it is one of the sectors that is uh, the most challenging to decarbonize in the long run. And so when we 
look out to 2030 or to 2050, uh, we struggle to see how that sector fully decarbonizes without the use of, of liquid fuels. So we're strongly attempting to include uh, that moving forward. But again, that will follow the process I outlined uh, with the board acting on the scoping plan and then an eventual uh, rulemaking change. Um, you also mentioned co-processing of renewable feedstocks uh, in conventional petroleum refineries. And from a technical perspective, that's certainly something uh, we're very excited to, to, to work more on. We've seen some of that occur in California already at uh, the Kern refinery in Bakersfield. And we've seen uh, some conventional refineries have a portion of their facility converted to a, basically be a, a biodiesel or a renewable diesel facility. For example, the Altair facility in Paramount, California. So uh, with those two examples, we really see, we're excited about even larger projects. And some of the majors are considering co-processing in uh, their FCC units or uh, in their hydro treaters. And we're digging into those proposals as brought forward by, by those folks and really trying to set up a uniform framework for that uh, through these working groups that we're holding. So um, it's an area that could potentially deliver a, a good amount of volume. And we want to be sure that we uh, can encourage that as much as possible. You know, what you're saying about jet fuel is is so true. I mean, it's really, it's it's jet fuel, marine, um, and heavy-duty trucking um, on a more, looking at more of a global scale, not just in California. But those are the three sectors um, that are not so easy to decarbonize and not so easy to just, you know, electrify. And so it seems like the consensus among, you know, IEA, you know, ARENA, uh, so the International Renewable Energy Agency, um, you know, and others is, you know, that biofuels might be or, or bio-based uh, fuels um, might be the best um, and maybe perhaps the only solution for some of these applications. Maybe it's a, maybe there are a few more options in the marine sector. But in order to de- to decar- and, and those are the, the three sectors that are actually growing the most in, in terms of the CO2 emissions and also pollutant, air pollutant emissions. So it's, it's a, it's a really tough sector. And so that, that's the interesting thing about, uh, biojet from my perspective is that, you know, the market's there. I mean, the airlines are just waiting. I mean, essentially, you know, for this, this product. I mean, it's not like, what we saw on the passenger car side with a mandate that was saying, eh, you know, kind of maybe initially lukewarmly <laughs> received, you know, by the industry. I mean, this is an industry that's looking for alternatives and there aren't really a lot um, out there. So it's, um, um, it's a, I've always thought that that was really an, an interesting dynamic. It was a market waiting for the product not the product trying to snuggle into, you know, a market. It's, um, I don't know if you have any comment on that, but it's an interesting dynamic and it's happening globally, you know, not just in California. Yeah, that, I agree with you. I think that we're attempting to recognize that global trend and um, do our part to contribute to it. I mean, we see the airlines as an important partner uh, moving forward because they do have these robust uh, corporate sustainability goals and just because of the attention paid to the technology, uh, you know, by other uh, nations and, and experts. So we are doing our best to uh, engage with that community and promote the potential inclusion in a way that will align with the overall program goals of, of promoting 
new facilities uh, deploying advanced fuels. So I wanted to ask you about um, advanced um, biofuels. Um, how do you see advanced biofuels fitting into the future of LCF in the, into the future of the LCFS program? I mean, obviously, you know, there's there've been pathways that have been approved, but you know, there still isn't a lot of actual, you know. Uh, production um, and volume um, in the marketplace. So what's CARB's um, view or your view on that? Do you see this uh, changing? Do you see some breakthroughs coming? I mean, obviously, there's some pathways out there. There's a little bit of volume in the market, but there's really not that much. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and, you know, while we it's true that we've seen these challenges with setting up these standalone cellulosic ethanol facilities, for example, um, we still believe strongly in the need to tap into cellulosic feedstocks generally, and especially residues and waste-based feedstocks, um, because we see those feedstocks as both very attractive for their their current carbon intensity scores, but also because they provide a pretty sustainable path for significant increases in, in total volumes of fuel produced. So we are committed to trying to continue to provide the right incentives for those types of technologies to come to market. And, you know, it may not be in these large standalone plants, you know, that we have seen people try so far. It may be through what sometimes is called Generation 1.5 technologies, you know, where you're going after the cellulosic portion of the corn kernel fiber. Or if you're attempting, uh, you know, to do some of the co-processing we just discussed, where you're taking a pyrolysis oil and you're using it in a conventional petroleum refinery uh, to produce some cellulosic uh, renewable diesel or gasoline or jet. So, um, you know, we're excited about those options. We're going to continue in the LCFS to provide uh, real value for facilities that are able to make those technologies work. Um, but most of our scenarios, as we look at 2030, are not predicated on uh, any one of those technologies uh, succeeding dramatically. Um, you know, just because uh, we've we've learned a little bit of caution from uh, what we've seen so far with the the, say for example, corn stover to cellulosic ethanol case study. So that brings me to actually uh, your your biggest the biggest um, player in the market. I mean, in terms of the 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 biofuel side, and that's that's corn ethanol. And something that I have noticed is that um, carbon intensity for, I mean, average uh, carbon intensity, shall I say, is really decreasing uh, for uh, for corn ethanol. I mean, and and for some plants, it's really decreased substantially. I mean, and I know that part of that is because of changes that the producers have made. So, you know, for example, they've gone to natural gas. They they don't dry their distiller's grains anymore, you know, things like that. They've made other sorts of improvements. And it, so I know part of it is that I know that part of it is that um, some of the modeling um, assumptions that are done under the, the California GREEP model have, you know, the, the data's improved. So the modeling has Im- improved um, over time. So the question that I have, with with all of that said, the question that I have for you is, first of all, I mean, corn ethanol 
has sort of uh, played in the LCFS program for longer than I think many analysts ex- expected, myself included. Um, I think when I initially was doing some analysis um, at my old firm, we uh, we thought um, ethanol would be out of the market now. And not only has ethanol remained in the market, it has really maintained its its market hold. I mean, there's about a you know about a billion gallons in, you know a year, um, you know uh, market that they have in in California. California. So the question that I have for you is, do you expect um, this trend to continue and that CIs will will continue to drop and that ethanol will remain in the market and maybe even grow further? Yeah, I, I think that there certainly the potential for continued improvement in corn ethanol CIs. And I think what you just said is really, it speaks to how valuable, you know, a flexible program like the LCFS is and how helpful it is to have um, recognition for incremental improvement uh, for a fuel like corn ethanol um, within the LCFS, which I believe is an advantage over the federal renewable fuel standard. Uh, you know, basically, we see all the actions that you just spoke about occurring um, across the industry. Uh, we're excited about those actions, and we see the potential for more. I mean, we've talked to many producers who are seriously considering the use of renewable electricity and renewable process fuels at their facilities, including biomethane. Uh, we're also, again, looking at those uh, Generation 1.5 technologies that we spoke about a little bit earlier. And the opportunity there, I, I believe, is pretty large in magnitude. If that's adopted across the industry, that would give us a significant amount of cellulosic-derived material uh, or, or cellulosic ethanol, essentially, uh, which would be very helpful. Uh, and on top of that, you know, you see folks seriously considering carbon capture and sequestration projects now and in a way that if you line up all these technologies, uh, you know, deployed together, you can certainly get dramatic greenhouse gas savings from ethanol that is still derived from corn. So I think that's a, you know, an exciting potential path forward. I'm not saying, you know, that that path will necessarily outcompete some of these other options out there, but we're watching those trends carefully and we are certainly seeing people come in and request pathways based on those types of actions. All right. We'll end it there. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Sam so much for being on the show today. It was great to have you, and I hope to have you back again. Thank you, Tammy. Nice to be here. Thank you. Please do us a favor before you go today, will you? Head over to iTunes and rate this podcast. This is huge for us in terms of improving our ranking in iTunes and keeping the show visible so that other people can discover it and benefit from it. Thanks ahead of time for helping us out. And if you're looking for more insight and analysis on future fuel issues, sign up for my free newsletter at futurefuelstrategies.com. <music>